0: Hi guys, we are continuing our series through the book of Revelation. Today we're in Revelation chapter 6, and really from this point on, Revelation gets crazy weird. So strap yourselves in, this is going to be a wild ride starting today. We have had this powerful throne room vision in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, Jesus being at the center, being declared worthy to open A seven sealed scroll. I call it the scroll of destiny, but it really is the scroll which, once opened, will bring God's future and purposes to fulfillment. So there's been this universal shaking worship service that has encircled Jesus, and they've been celebrating that he has been found worthy to open the scroll. And then in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 to 8 we see what happens when the seals begin to be broken. Revelation 6 verses 1 to 8. I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. And then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice of thunder, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest and when the lamb opened the second seal i heard the second living creature say come and then another horse came out a fiery red one its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other to him was given a large sword and when the lamb opened the third seal i heard the third living creature say come and i looked and there before me was a black horse its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wage and three quarts of barley for a day's wage. But do not damage the oil and the wine. And when the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades followed closely behind. And these were given the power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Okay, I told you it was going to get weird in a hurry. These are the infamous four horsemen of the apocalypse. And in thinking through how to approach today i thought it would be a good time to sort of catch our breath and introduce some new information about revelation as a book which will help us understand these four horsemen and will help frame how we want to move through the rest of the book and one of the new pieces of data that i want to introduce to you this morning is that there are different interpretations of the book of Revelation now as a standalone statement most Christians are probably familiar with that they're probably gonna say yeah I, I know there's different debates about I think I've heard stuff about um, does Jesus come before the millennium or after or what's the millennium symbolizing or what exactly is the mark of the beast or um, what is the nature of the lake of fire but I want to kind of stretch that a little bit to help us understand that many people, many Christians have only been exposed to one dominant way of viewing revelation and the interpretations of maybe um, the differences in interpretation are sort of localized to within that view, but they are actually at least four very distinct and very different ways of viewing the whole book and viewing sections like these Four Horsemen. So um, I want to introduce those four views to you today, because what will happen in doing so is we're going to be exposed to ways of reading this text that I think will be really enlightening and really helpful and we'll stretch our theological uh, boundaries and understanding in a way that is really, really constructive. Now, I do want to say this can be destabilizing for people when you are exposed to not just infighting around um, when is the Antichrist going to rise to power, but a question like, is there even... An Antichrist, a capital A Antichrist, or is that a symbol for something else? Exposure to some of these different interpretations can lead to a lot of anxiety and doubt, especially if we've built a huge part of our theological confidence around revelation or just more broadly end time prediction and speculation. So I want to be... As gentle as I can with uh, leading us into and through these views. And I want you to brace for the reality that both today and in the weeks to come, as we explore how these views read and interpret and apply different um, loaded passages in Revelation, you're going to come across views that are very different from. Likely ones that you've been exposed to and that might rattle your cage a little bit Um, But my pastoral encouragement to you will be to kind of hang on because when the dust settles You're going to have a deeper appreciation for this book and I think a deeper understanding of how to apply it to your own life But it, it, it might get a little bit more turbulent before things smooth out so let's move in as we look at the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Let's first look at the four broad views or interpretational streams that people have approached Revelation through. And then what we're going to do is apply those to the Four Horsemen. We're going to say here's view one, two, three, four, and then here's how each of those views understands what we're being shown here through this picture of the Four Horsemen. So, traditionally, interpreters have approached Revelation in four primary ways, although in my experience, most Christians have only been exposed to one, maybe two of those interpretational streams. So we're going to explore all four very briefly. This is not a deep dive. In successive weeks and through the Summit newsletter, I am going to be highlighting videos, short articles. That will allow you to kind of go to the next level of exploring these views. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of information here that I'm going to just kind of pass over in order to provide a summary. So this is not an exhaustive treatment of each view but it's just to kind of give you a bearing around where these views land and how they're distinct and how they relate to one another. So the first view is called the Preterist interpretation or the preterist view. And Praetor is the Latin, which means past. And of all the views, this tends to be the one that is most shocking or hard to wrap one's head around for many Christians. And that is because preterists believe the the bulk of the prophecies in Revelation, like 90% of them. And what Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, about the signs of his coming at the end of the the age and wars and rumors of wars and famine, that the bulk of those prophecies were fulfilled in the first century with the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So to a preterist, what we are reading has long since passed. Outside of the final culminating chapters of Revelation where there's a final judgment and the physical return of Christ to establish his kingdom in a new heavens and a new earth Everything else that Revelation Shows us is in the past. It's already happened and not only that it happened a long time ago. It happened to that first generation of believers so they say Chapters 1 through 3, which are these seven letters to the seven churches, describe the conditions of those churches just prior to the great Jewish war in AD 70, where uh, the second temple was massively destroyed that led to all kinds of horrific and barbaric bloodshed and destruction. And then the remaining chapters of Revelation describe the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans. It's all symbolic ways. Of saying God um, judged the temple and The nation of Israel for the rejection of the Messiah And so this view interprets revelations vision and prophecies to have largely already come to pass Now you can imagine how that that's a huge shift for most Christians because many Christians Understand prophecy is that which is happening in the future and it was happening in the future to the people who originally got this message But to us, it's in the long past. And so when we study Revelation, we can learn from it. But but from a preterist interpretation, we are studying events that have already taken place. The second view is the historicist view. And if you think about a timeline between the first century, the early church, and now, the historicist approach says what Revelation is... Is It's kind of a map or an outline of what's in some cases what has happened But in many cases will also will happen in the future throughout church history so as we read through Revelation the chapters kind of chronologically map to significant events in global history so chapters 1 to 3 are seven periods within church history the breaking of the seals in chapters 4 through 7, those that symbolizes the fall of the Roman Empire. And the trumpet judgments in chapters 8 to 10 represent the invasion of the Roman Empire by the Vandals and the Huns and the Turks. Uh, among Protestant historicists, not historians, but those who hold this view, the, um, the, the Antichrist that we see rise up in Revelation was believed to be symbolic of the papacy or the Pope. In chapters 11 through 13, we're seeing the true church and its struggle against Roman Catholicism and the the bold judgments of the next few chapters represent God's judgment on the Roman Catholic Church. So you can kind of see the subtext here. This is a very anti-Roman Catholic perspective, but it is so because what it does is it maps these great acts of judgment that they that they read about in revelation onto global church history and say what we're seeing is a progressive unfolding of history some of which has already happened maybe some of which is happening at the moment and a few things will be left in the future so the preterist says almost everything's already happened in the past the historicist says Things have kind of been equally, uh, the prophecies have kind of been equally being dished out as we move through different epochs of history. And the historicists would say, when we're studying Revelation, we're studying a symbolic depiction of the most important events in global history from the first church, eventually leading up to the return of Jesus. Now, the third view Is likely the one that uh, you have been exposed to, that you are comfortable with, that some of the word cloud associations with this view would be familiar to you. This is the Futurist view. And the Futurist approach considers most of the book of Revelation to be related to future events. So Preterist says it mostly happened within a number of decades of receiving this revelation in the first century. The historicist kind of spreads out the prof- prophetic fulfillment across the timeline, but the future says no. The, the vast majority of what we're um, reading about, other than the letters to the seven churches, almost everything on Revelation 4, 5, 6, and forward, that relates to things that have yet to have happened. They have yet to be fulfilled and this is a very very popular view within evangelicalism if you have all been exposed to concepts like the rapture or the end times mark of the beast speculation talk of a one-world government or a seven-year tribulation or a strong emphasis on the millennial reign of Christ you've likely been taught Some version of the futurist perspective. Now, I want to say within each of these perspectives, there's slight nuances in terms of not all preterists are the same, not all futurists are the same. But again, I'm just trying to give a really simple overview so that you're able to differentiate these things. And become aware, in the case of the futurist perspective, that the futurist perspective is not the only perspective on Revelation. Uh, You can immediately see how a preterist would completely disagree with the starting premise of the futurist. A preterist says, we're reading ancient history. And a futurist says, no, we're reading prophecies yet to be fulfilled that we need to look forward in in order to understand. Futurists tend to apply a very literal and linear approach to interpreting Revelation. And chapters 4 through 19, so the bulk of the book most futurists believe refer to a period known as the seven-year tribulation or the great tribulation. And when we get there, we'll tie that into um, a prophecy in the book of Daniel chapter 9. But the basic idea is that during this time, uh, Jesus has raptured true believers, his church from the earth. And there is a time of intense tribulation or hardship or suffering and this is when god's judgments are poured out upon mankind chapter 13 describes a literal future one world empire headed by a political and religious leader that is represented by two beasts chapter 17 pictures a prostitute who represents a false church that arises during that time chapter 19 refers to christ's second coming and this great um, um you know literal battle of armageddon which is going to happen in the middle east which is going to then usher in as christ defeats his foes a thousand year reign of christ on the earth followed by the consummation of the kingdom in chapters 21 and 22 and jesus is going to get a new heavens and a new earth So, a futurist reads Revelation and the chapters from certainly six onwards, starting with the Four Horsemen, as things which will happen in pretty short succession, all clustered together once the time of tribulation, once the great tribulation begins sometime in the future. So, again, basic stance. Preterist says almost all of these things have already happened. And all of these symbols and prophecies, we can point to things that happened in the first 50, first generation of the church around the destruction of Jerusalem and said, they've already been fulfilled. Historicist says these are happening as history unfolds. And the futurist says almost none of these things have come to pass yet. These are prophecies that will really only apply to the final generation who's alive before Jesus returns to rapture his church last view called the idealist or sometimes called the spiritual view but i'm just going to refer to it as the idealist view and this approach doesn't interpret revelation in terms of any particular reference to time it says this is an apocalyptic revelation that reveals the struggle between good and evil between good and evil that inevitably follows and is a part of any generation who is seeking to follow Jesus faithfully. And so this view uses kind of an allegorical method to interpret the book of Revelation. So they completely detach Revelation from the burden of having to point to specific events or people on a historical timeline. And they say, no, the imagery in this book is designed to present the ongoing struggle throughout the ages of God against Satan, of good against evil, of the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. And in this struggle, these symbols, these themes just keep recurring. Saints are persecuted and they're martyred, but there is vindication. In the end, God is victorious. The church moves forward. Revelation, the idealist writes, or believes, um, is what happens, especially chapters 6 through 19. These things happen as the kingdom of God collides with the kingdom of evil and this world. Now, the details may change. If you were the church in the first century, the details of what, who the antichrist is or what a mark of the beast is or how war or pestilence or cataclysmic events, those play out differently in your generation as opposed to the church in 800 AD or the church in 2020. But every generation of disciples has to face the spirit of the Antichrist, has to confront the mark of the beast, has to confront wars and rumors of wars and pestilence. And so what Revelation shows us is um, it kind of gives us a roadmap to what the church can expect, regardless of where they are around the globe and regardless of where they find themselves on the historical timeline. So it's um, a very different read of Revelation, and it's a symbolic read, but I don't want people to hear symbolic and think um, not meaningful or applicable it's imminently so in the same way that ephesians 6 talks about the fact that we're in a spiritual battle um, you think of revelation as a massive expansion of ephesians 6 saying this is the nature of this battle every christian is going to face every generation is going to face the temptation to uh, submit to the mark of the beast or to move along with the spirit of Antichrist. Or to face the temptation to be pulled in a direction that is um, prostituting itself to the larger culture around it. That doesn't make revelation impractical. Uh, it makes it imminently practical. And so the idealist, although they aren't as obsessed with where are these prophecies being particularly fulfilled, they would answer they're being fulfilled every generation right, right, right now. And we have to develop eyes to see and then respond appropriately. Okay, so that's kind of the um, high-level perspective of each view. But I want to show you how that plays out in understanding the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Because this will help you sort of say, okay, um... That Okay, that's really different. I would not have maybe gone there or thought to read that into the text, but I want to show you how these four different streams of reading and interpreting and applying the text um, go in, in pretty significant di- uh, different directions, but they all make sense within the view that is um, informing um, each perspective. So the first, the preterist, right? These are the people who say... Most of the stuff has already happened. And the Preterist says what we're seeing in the four horsemen of the apocalypse is the progression of events that led up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Horses represent war. And the first four seals that we're seeing here, when broken, release both warfare and the things that follow um, follow war, you know, bloodshed and famine and pestilence and economic devastation. So the Preterist says these four horsemen are symbolic of things that, uh, events that led up to the Jerusalem War and, you can, and uh, the Jewish War of 8070. And you can read stuff. Uh, you can just do a simple Wikipedia read of some of these things and you can understand how someone would say, oh yeah, this has already been fulfilled. This this happened in this order right away, <laughs> leading up to AD 70. Now the Historicist, <clears throat> this is really, uh, to me, strange. I'm not a, of all the views, just as a bit of a spoiler, I am, um, I, I, I see really, really solid, um, uh, I think there's a lot of validity in the Preterist, Futurist, and the Idealist view. Historicist view, feels incredibly arbitrary and uh, not imminently helpful uh, for a few reasons, but I'll leave that to the side for now. But the historicist view, which I'm not a huge fan of, would say, oh, these four horsemen represent distinct pockets of of, of history between, um, let's say, 90 AD, when it was given, and the 3rd century. So each of these horses are kind of, placed onto very specific events that happened in like a 200 225 year period in the first century why well they just sort of grafted onto while there was a time of peace where the gospel goes out that's the first horse and then there was this particular kind of persecution and that's where the next horse comes in so they would align these things to events that happened in the first 200 years of the church the futurist, as you can imagine, again, we're talking about these are the four horsemen are the beginning of the end, as it were, as a scroll of destiny gets opened. And the futurist would say the first seal with its breaking represents the start of the Great Tribulation, a seven-year period of unequaled misery and hardship on the earth that's going to occur after the rapture of the church, but before the ultimate second coming of Christ. So the futurist would say the white horse is this antichrist power who's going to rise. Um, There's all all kinds of clues in the text. Maybe we'll talk about this next week that this isn't a legitimate ruler. This is a counterfeit uh, king. So the white horse represents the antichrist who's going to rise to power. And the red horse is the bloodshed from warfare that's going to result as the antichrist uh, gains political and religious power across the globe. The black horse is a symbol of economic devastation that's going to follow. I mean, we think of scales more in terms of justice, but the idea here is that in um, and, and the crying out of the price of barley, that that uh, regular things are going to cost a day's wage. It's going to take a, a huge amount of work just to secure. Enough food for one person, but the oil and the wine is left untouched and that's a reference to those with wealth so as the Antichrist comes to power, there's going to be this massive uh, Economic gap between the haves and the have-nots and then the pale horse and a time after this death is going to come there's going to be a some kind of cataclysmic event some kind of decreational event that happens That the antichrist and the beast will seize upon to secure power and then uh, lead humanity or seek to lead humanity forward. And then the idealist who says revelation kind of plays out in every generation or the symbols do or much of them do. um, Their key to understanding what's happening here in the four horsemen is to understand the continual call that is given to come. And when we read that, we might, we might assume the entity being asked to come forward are the horses, right? I, I heard a voice say, come, and then the seal was broken and another horse comes out. But an idealist would say, who is being asked all of through revelation to come? It's Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus that's the end of Revelation, the entire book. And so the idealist view would say what we're seeing with these four horsemen are patterns that play out in any generation where the church and individual Christians are saying, God, we want your kingdom to come. We want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we, when the church sincerely lives into that vision and seeks to apply it to all of life, then the kingdom of God comes in power, but it collides or it creates massive tension points like tectonic plates under the earth's surface between the kingdom of God and counterfeit kingdoms and counterfeit idols. And those pressure points build until something gives. And the white horse represents imposter princes or antichrists that can arise in any age that seek to say, no, we're the ones you should be following. We're the ones you should be listening to. I'm the one who has authority in your life. The red horse represents the bloodshed from persecution that christians in every age will face if they are faithful to jesus the black horse represents the economic persecution that will come and often has come to generations whether you lived in 100 a.d or 500 a.d or 1500 a.d or today the economic persecution that happens when people seek to stay faithful to jesus but are cut off of economic networks and benefits for the sake uh, or because they are committed to Jesus and the pale horse whose rider's name is death and Hades follows behind this represents the fact that in any age even if Christians are faithful to Jesus they're still not going to escape um, the forces of death that get marshaled against the church sometimes and even sometimes when the judgment of God is released On a particular generation, Christians still share in that suffering, in that hardship. They're not automatically and always protected from physical or relational or economic harm. So the idealist says these four horsemen are what play out in any generation of the church where the church is moving forward with boldness and confidence in confronting the forces of darkness. That they're putting on the armor of God and standing against the devil's schemes, as Ephesians 6 would say. Now, personally, I think there's a lot to glean from elements of the preterist, futurist, and idealist position. The historicist position I don't think is particularly strong. It's definitely the least subscribed to view, and I think there are good reasons for that. Um, But the Preterist position, as you look into it, it is very strong. The Futurist position has a lot of strengths to it. And I would also argue, so does the Idealist position. If you are interested in doing a bit more of a deeper dive into these Four Views, there are two resources that I would recommend. The first is Revelation Four Views uh, by Stephen Gregg. And the second is a Zondervan counterpoint series called Four Views of Revelation that have four authors from each view making a case for their view, and then everyone else from the other views gets to write a rebuttal. So that that second resource is, is a little bit more theologically and academically intense. The Revelation Four Views by Stephen Gregg is a very, very good and accessible introduction because it moves through the entire book of Revelation, and as it does, it kind of says, okay, we're looking at the four horsemen of the apocalypse today. What does each view, how does each view understand, um, read and interpret that passage? So that would be something for you to check out. I'm not going to be doing a deep dive into all of these different views as we move through um, Revelation, but I will be giving nods here and there to a few of them. But generally speaking, I am going to be pulling from Preterist futurist and idealist positions because as I work through it myself. I kind of see myself as a evolving kind of hybrid um, Among these views because I think there's a lot of strengths uh, uh, Within them, especially when it comes to certain loaded passages that um, Yeah I'll, I'll stop there, but I just want to say Moving forward in Revelation, it's important for you to understand my heart is very warm and my mind is very convinced of a significant amount of legitimacy to the Preterist, Futurist, and Idealist position. And for some that might be confusing because you're like, how can you reconcile the Preterist position with the Futurist position? Well, I'll show you as we move forward, but that's kind of my in-process views. Now, the good news is, in coming out of these four views and looking at these four horsemen of the apocalypse, is that I don't think you have to be totally and perfectly and precisely committed to one particular view. I certainly am not. I think you can move through Revelation, look at different ways of reading and understanding it and saying, I think this is the best conclusion. I think this is the best way to read and understand this text. And the reason why I say that is because regardless of where we land on some of the specifics, a Christian who's taking the Bible seriously is going to end up affirming all of the following things, regardless of whether you're a preterist, a futurist, or an idealist. And this is a, I've taken much of these summary points from Sam Storms, who is an excellent biblical scholar, and he says, every Christian has always landed on the following bottom line commitments coming out of the book of Revelation, that God is sovereign, right? That Christ is king, that spiritual forces are real and that they actively opposed God in his purposes in every age, that history has a purpose and it's moving towards a culmination, and that culmination is going to happen in Jesus, that justice is going to be served, and that ultimately Christ is coming again to establish a new heavens and a new earth. Right amid all the argumentation over this book and its symbolism, and questions surrounding the rapture or a tribulation period, or what's the role of Israel, when were these particular parts of Revelation fulfilled, or have they not been yet? We're called to never lose sight of where the ultimate book, uh, sorry, where the book is ultimately taking us, and the truth that it holds out to us, that which is a promise, which is the physical, personal, bodily return of Jesus to bring together heaven and earth as he confronts evil and injustice and fully establishes the kingdom of God here on earth. That is the ultimate capital H hope of the Christian life, that we will dwell in. And reign and rule with him in a new heavens and new earth. So let that hope be the anchor that allows you to play and explore these different views, but not feel the burden to have to land on one particular one or have all the details sorted out. Christ is coming, Christ is the King, history will be fulfilled in and through him. He is the worthy one who is opening the seals and bringing God's plan to fulfillment. So as you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may you live into this revelation of Jesus Christ, and may your lives reveal an uncommon confidence and hope in him. And may you display in ways large and small this week, that he alone is worthy. May the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless. Have a great week.